Now, one spin-off of uh, the unity and yet uh, great diversity of uh, the human race is uh, a plethora of uh, ethnic jokes. And it wasn't so long ago that I remember reading in the newspaper that someone had done a PhD uh, in this subject. And uh, that now in a certain university on the other side of the Atlantic, uh, a course of study uh, is offered to students who want to avail themselves uh, of this particular speciality. Now, there are a mass of these stories, but there are two that uh, come to me in recent uh, days, and just to uh, get them off my chest, I thought I'd share them with you. First one is, the first one is a Jewish story. And uh, it is said that a Jewish family were uh, visiting a large art gallery and uh, taking in the sights. And eventually they came uh, to a scene of the nativity. And there was the crib and uh, Mary and Joseph and the ox and the ass looking on. And the Jewish father looked at it with a fair degree of admiration and turned to his family and he said, just like the Jews, he said, haven't got a room for the night and yet still managed to get the family portrait painted by Rubens. <laughs> and the other one's an Irish story. There's a story of uh, an unemployed paddy seeking employment on a London, London building site and after a quick tour of the operations uh, the foreman said to the Irishman that he could have the job provided he could uh, answer a simple question. Uh, and the question was this, what's the difference between a girder and a joist? Ah, oh, said the Irishman, that's easy. He said, girder, he wrote Faust. Joist, he wrote Ulysses. <laughs> <laughs> but to come back more seriously to our subject, the biblical doctrine of race. I want to divide my material into two main uh, categories and then add a postscript. First of all, to look at the unity and solidarity of mankind and secondly the diversity and complexity and then by way of a postscript to say a little about the uniqueness of the individual who of course is uh, the most important for our consideration in this subject by way of introduction then from the biological physical or genetical point of view race is a biological concept relating to the classification unit that scientists adopt uh, immediately below the species. The species, in our, in our uh, purposes this evening, being mankind, is considered, or has been considered down through the ages, as capable of subdivision into a number of identifiable races or subspecies. Now it is widely accepted that the various classification systems are all less than satisfactory and that by virtue of the complexity of the subject matter. The various races of mankind just do not drop neatly into any classification. A standard contemporary attempt at classification can be found on page 107 of the World Christian Encyclopedia. The five races that are listed there are said to be Australoid, Capoid, that's the pygmies and, and bushmen, Caucasoid, Mongoloid and Negroid. Now, the criteria that has been applied by anthropologists to determine race includes such things as relative length of different parts of the body, size and shape of the head, amount of body hair, hair colour and texture, blood types, facial characteristics, and of course, skin colour. But increasingly, modern anthropologists are rejecting, it seems, as outdated, the concept of different races. And for such reasons as the continual population movements across the world, the resultant interbreeding which has taken place, populations have so graded into each other that it is arguable that no pure races exist if they ever existed. As Eugene Nider, the American Bible Society uh, missionary anthropologist, has pointed out, and quoting from him, he says, actually, he said, it is impossible to draw a line at any point and neatly separate people into their proper racial groups, at the end of the quote. Nida also states that such an approach to the problem of race, though valid as a biological concept, is not a valid socio-cultural concept. It is even less satisfactory, I suggest, when we try to relate such an approach to the biblical and theological concerns before us this evening. Nor does the biblical data sit well with distinctions such as those that we find within the scriptures such as people and nation, for example. 
although the terms tribes, tongues, peoples, nations, kingdoms, and multitudes occur in seven refrains in the book of Revelation, and thus reflect the Bible's familiarity with the ethno-linguistic complexity of the world, it does not do so with the regimented precision required by the scientific anthropologist or biologist. And though a study of each of these New Testament Greek terms and their corresponding and supplementary Hebrew terms would prove both profitable and interesting, it would not lead us very much closer to an understanding of the main emphases of the biblical doctrine of race. The first thing then to consider is that the Bible teaches the unity and solidarity of mankind. The Bible views the human situation fundamentally as one. It is precisely because all men are basically similar that God can and does address himself through the single medium of scripture to all the people of the earth. Though taking cognizance of a certain diversity evident in mankind, the Bible fundamentally concerns itself with only one race, the human race. And this is traditional, of course, in Reformed theology, uh, to refer to the race and uh, see that as the entirety of uh, mankind. The most basic biblical teaching is that all mankind is descended from a single pair of ancestors, namely, of course, Adam and Eve. And this truth is arrived at both by explicit reference and inference. The scriptural record of the creation of the first humans, and the special and memorable act of creation by which they were invested with the divine image and mandated to be fruitful and multiply, requires we look nowhere else to seek the, founda the founders of the human race. And uh, we find also in such passages as the Genesis genealogies and uh, the statements of Genesis 3.20, 7.23, 9 verse 1, 9 verse 19, 10.32, we have clear reference to the descent of all mankind from Adam and Eve and eventually after the flood through Noah. The fact of the organic, genetical and genealogical unity of the race is quite clear from the early scripture record. The genealogical tables of peoples that we find in Genesis 10 also uniquely emphasizes the unity of mankind. This table does not set out to trace the origin of a single nation, but to present the fact that all the nations are descended from Noah. The South African writer Hugo de Plessis states, and I'm quoting here, what is given here is the genealogy of the human race. In spite of God will diversity, and there is not only the unity of common descent from Noah, but here we also find, at least in principle, complete equality of the generations. All the peoples bear the same relationship to God and are answerable to God in the same way. Here, all ethnocentrism is transcended. And de Plessis goes on to say, this majestic vision of the primordial relatedness of all peoples and the fundamental equality is only found in the scriptures. We find that in the Old Testament and then likewise in the New Testament we see also eloquent testimony to the common ancestry and organic unity of mankind. And I refer particularly to Paul's Areopagus address in Acts chapter 17 where in verse 26 he speaks of the creation of man from one. The AV provides the word blood, the NIV provides the word man, but the thought is quite clear and requires perhaps no addition to express the truth of the unity of the race. All mankind is descended from one. F.F. F. Bruce in his commentary on Acts uh, says this, the creator in all things in general is the creator of mankind in particular. Uh, the Athenians might pride themselves on being autochthonous, that is sprung from the soil of their native Attica, but this pride was ill-founded. All mankind was one in origin, all created by God and all descended from one common ancestor. This removed the imagined justification that Greeks were innately superior to barbarians, as it removes all imagined justification for parallel beliefs today. Neither in nature or in grace, neither in the old creation nor in the new, is there any room for ideas of racial superiority. As John Stott has pointed out, the Apostle in fact used this argument as part of his expose of the sin and folly of idolatry, but he could equally well uh, have used it to expose the folly and evil of racism. The portrayal of God given in these verses 
is of one who is creator, sustainer, and father of all mankind. Says Stott, if he is the God of all human beings, this will affect our attitudes to them as well as to him. You'll find that in John Stott's book, Issues Faced by Christians Today, page 205. Despite the pressures of certain pseudo-scientific trends in the southern states of pre-Civil War America to attempt to justify slavery by attempting to assign to the Negro some different racial origin, neither Dabney nor Thornwell, though both perhaps what would be called uh, racist today, uh, deviated from the accepted belief in the unity of the race. Dabney points out the theological importance of this fact and in a quotation from his lectures in systematic theology he says if there are men on earth not descended from Adam's race then their federal connection with them is broken but more their inheritance in the uh, protevangelium is also interrupted. The warrant of the church to carry the gospel to that people is lacking. And with equal insistence, but greater passion, Thornwell urges, and I quote again, science, falsely so called, may attempt to exclude him, that is the Negro, from the brotherhood of humanity. Men may be seeking eminence and distinction by arguments which link him with the brute, but the instinctive impulses of our nature, combined with the plainest declarations of the word of God, lead us to recognize in his form and lineaments in his moral, religious and intellectual nature the same humanity in which we glory as the image of God. We are not ashamed to call him brother. And you'll find that in Thomas' Collected Writings, volume 4, page 402. And it is, of course, a, as I see it, a historical tragedy that neither theologian seemed constitutionally able to draw the necessary conclusions and allow biblical principles to triumph over vested interest. We cannot fail then to notice the clear implication and application of uh, this truth of the creation of the race as one. God is, by virtue of this creation, the father of all men, who are our brothers. It is no sentimental or romantic doctrine of liberalism to subscribe to the brotherhood of all mankind. It is a biblical concept. The familiar words of John Donne are founded upon scriptural truths the implications of which must shock us out of any insularity and pride of race. You remember his words, any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Not only do we have brotherhood with all men, we are also our brother's keeper. We are obliged by Christ to love our neighbour and we are duty bound to do good unto all men. We cannot, for we must account for such things at a judgment throne, give countenance to any racial prejudice, but rather humble ourselves and, like our Saviour, be servants of all. But of course, mankind has been characterised on many occasions by the sin of racism. And I want to look at two particular manifestations of that uh, sinful tendency. There are many that we could look at, but I want to look at Nazi anti-Semitism and South African apartheid. Perhaps these are the two most heinous forms of racism that have come to expression in our own century and which cry to heaven for the prophetic denunciation of biblical teaching. Uh, to be sure there have been many other attempts to deny the unity of mankind in the subjugation and even destruction of races. We cannot forget for example the genocide in Cambodia or Stalin's ruthless the destruction of racial minorities. Well, the legacy, for example, of slavery in the USA and the racial problems that engulfed that nation for uh, an extensive period. And of course the present suppression of Jews in the Soviet Union. And yet both Nazism and apartheid hold special claim, I believe, to our attention. Uh, for they both came to expression in so-called Christian countries and enjoyed the endorsement of large sections of the church in those countries. At first sight they may seem to be very different. But despite gross injustice there is certainly no attempt to exterminate the black population of South Africa. However the basic philosophies of race undergirding these two systems are more or less identical. 
Both are preoccupied with the idea of a race which is destined to rule. And both are pathologically concerned to preserve the purity of the race, even to the extent of passing and upholding laws designed to prohibit intermarriage, fearing that intermarriage would somehow create a degeneration of the race. The Northern, that the notorious South African Prohibition of Mixed Marriages Act has now been abandoned is probably largely due to what has been called the steady dripping of moral criticism over a period of 40 years rather than a real change of heart in uh, the heartlands of Afrikanerdom. And both, of course, of these systems have segregated society. The Nazis by herding the Jews into ghettos and the Afrikaner nationalists by their Group Areas Act the family-destroying migrant labour and influx control laws, and the creation of pseudo-autonomous Bantu stands and homelands such as the Transkei and Siskei. We're familiar with the fact that Hitler used a totally untenable scientific theory of race to justify his elevation of the Aryan idea and the destruction of the Jews. Some theologians, such as Paul Althus, championed the cause of the preservation, as he put it, preservation of the purity of the folk and of our race. And few contradicted that point of view in Germany that, in those days. One of the very few is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Edwin Robinson, in his recent biography of Bonhoeffer, The Shame and the Sacrifice, tells us that on the notorious Kristallnacht, that was the night when the, uh, the, the Nazis uh, went through the land and smashed up the synagogues and Jewish homes, Bonhoeffer wrote in his Bible against the date, the 9th of the 11th of 38. Uh, he, he wrote uh, the date, that is, sorry. He wrote the date beside the verse in Psalm 74 that tells us that they burned all the meeting places of God in the land. That night of terror should have raised a clamour for justice from the throats of Christians throughout Germany, but it did not. Karl Barth, on reading Eberhard Bethke's biography of Bonhoeffer in 1967, recalled with shame that Bonhoeffer had spoken out more forcibly and clearly than many others of the persecution of the Jews as fellow human beings. The situation was such, felt Bonhoeffer, likening affairs in the, in the state to the antics of a mad driver, that it was not enough to bind up the wounds of the victim, but to do something to put a spoke in the wheel. He sought to have a statement on the Jewish question incorporated in the Bethel Confession, which in turn could, in turn could well have been included in the Barman Declaration. And that was the expression, of course, of the resistance of the confessing church in Germany to Hitler's policies. But it was not incorporated. And the result has been that Jewish writers and thinkers of today have forced German evangelicals to listen to legitimate criticism that they were silent in the face of Hitler's Holocaust. And this has created an additional barrier to gospel witness to Jewish people elsewhere. As Jewish Christian Jacob Yotch points out, faith in the God of Israel, in the God of the covenant, in the God of history, is always a test and a challenge. But after Auschwitz, it is an agonizing venture for every thinking Jew. How much harder, I suggest to you, it is for Jews to heed the church's message when the church that now attempts to evangelize was considered by the Jewish people to have been silent during, during the Holocaust. Few nations in Europe have the record of Holland, Denmark and Finland where Christian activity on behalf of the Jews was both courageous and sacrificial. It's a, an epic story well worth reading of the uh, attempts that were made to preserve the Jewish people of those lands. Under the leadership of their Christian king, the people of Denmark shipped out the whole of the Jewish community except 52 who had been uh, taken into custody uh, by the Nazis prior to the rescue operation. They put them in a little armada of boats and uh, they shipped them to neutral Sweden. The Finnish foreign minister declared to the Nazi authorities, Finland is a decent nation. We would rather perish together with the Jews. We will not surrender the Jews. And of Finland's 2,000 Jews, only four were deported. The record of Christian families in Holland, such as the Ten Booms, also demonstrate the concern of Christians to speak and act on behalf of the victims of racism and prejudice. The, the descendants of such people today have greater credibility when they seek to witness to Jewish people. Their daring deeds of love and kindness are not forgotten and they stand to authenticate the gospel message.
if in the trauma of South Africa today, white Christians don't learn the lessons of history, learn the lessons of the Nazi period, the Holocaust period, for example, and fail to speak out for and identify with the just grievances of the black majority, I'm sure the day will undoubtedly dawn when such a barrier of prejudice will have been erected that gospel witness by whites to blacks in that land will be virtually pointless and will fall on deaf ears. Seems to me that the battle must be fought on two fronts. It must be shown that the racial myths undergirding apartheid are both biblically and scientifically untenable. And secondly, the struggle for justice and equality must be carried out not just in the realm of white debate and discussion, but in concrete demonstration to the black community. Blacks today do not want the paternalistic and patronizing charity of the whites. They rightly demand full justice and equal consideration as partners in a new multiracial South Africa. Talk of love and concern is totally inadequate. Rarely, in ever, if ever, in the Gospels uh, do we uh, read of the Lord himself protesting his love uh, towards people. He did not have to tell people that he loved them, for he gave such a powerful demonstration of his love that it was self-evident. And the cross, of course, itself demonstrates the love, solidarity and self-sacrifice which not only satisfied the just demands of a righteous God, but is also intended to exert a powerful moral influence over all believers as they seek to live a Christ-like life. The blacks of South Africa must be treated as human beings, living in an open and free society where they can walk with their heads up. Like the prophets of the scriptures, the church has the duty to denounce tyranny and national leaders, cost what it may, but it is also under obligation to demonstrate truth and love in its fellowship, where the multiracial nature of the kingdom of God can be seen in action. We can only be encouraged that in this regard at least, the Dutch Reformed Church is now giving its people and nation the long-awaited challenge and lead to biblical thinking. In a recent uh, paper they're calling the church not just to orthodoxy, not just to right belief, but also to orthopraxis, to the right practice of justice. The error of racism must be exposed by denying that there is any scriptural warrant for the belief that God makes his covenant with nations on the basis of nationality and that the resultant confusion between church and nation is erroneous. In its recently published Church and Society, a testimony of the Dutch Reformed Church published in Pretoria last year, we read the following. To fulfill its calling to God, to itself and to society, and to lend credibility to its proclamation, the very existence of the church must be a visible symbol and concrete expression of the kingdom of God. For all sectors of society, the church must be a living window of what God in his grace accomplishes, how he renews relationships, how he grants reconciliation, mutual understanding and peace, how he transforms suspicion into brotherly love. End of quote. The church must not fail to make it clear that it is not only the black people who are the victims of apartheid, but the very advocates and perpetrators of such a vicious system are by their support of it dehumanizing themselves as they cause the degradation of their fellow citizens. Secondly, I'd like to think with you of the diversity and complexity of mankind. Having looked at the unity of mankind and perhaps some application uh, to current uh, concerns, now look at the diversity and complexity of mankind. Now we see that with the rest of creation the Lord has displayed a rich diversity of shape and colour and form. You can go into any bookshop and you can pick up marvellously illustrated field guides to birds and butterflies and flowers and trees. And they're eloquent testimony uh, to the rich creation and the diverse creation of the Lord. It would be most unusual to find man, the crown and pinnacle of God's creative acts, to be alone the victim of dull uniformity. And of course we are not disappointed. The rich variety seen elsewhere is reflected also in the family of man. Whilst we cannot ascribe strict scientific status to the terms tribes, tongues, peoples, nations, kingdoms and multitudes, they nevertheless convey to us a very clear and vivid impression of the ethno-linguistic complexity of mankind. However, in view of what we've already said about the essential unity of mankind, we are forced to ask a question. Whence all this diversity? 
if uh, the whole human race is descended from Adam and Eve, how is it that there is such a, a vast diversity amongst the human family? How do we account for the various races, their languages and their cultures? And I think in trying to come to an answer to that question, the first thing is to consider environmental factors. In Genesis 1.28, the so-called cultural mandate, we see here spelled out man's primary obligations in terms of cultivating the potential of his environment, in increasing the world population, and in ruling over the creation. It is clear from this expression of God's will that man was to utilize every hospitable environment on the planet. By the very nature of the diversity of that habitat, from fertile valleys to the less hospitable mountains, deserts and forests, man's history and culture would inevitably be heavily influenced by his locality. In relative isolation from others, and under the special constraints of developing technologies, art forms and communicational needs, language, always a dynamic entity, would adjust and specialise to cope with the prevailing needs. And therefore we can see how a diversity could quite easily have evolved. It is not difficult to imagine that something like today's ethno-linguistic diversity could have naturally evolved as man was obedient to the cultural mandate. <coughs> However, a gentle, a gentle and natural development, perhaps retaining some degree of mutual understandability, nevertheless did not materialise. And so we have to consider what we could call judgmentally accelerated diversity. Due to the proud and rebellious nature of post-Diluvian society, with its preoccupation with reputation building and solidarity, divine judgment was meted out. The narrative of Genesis 11 is familiar to us all. Under this judgment, the tower builders were dispersed by a confusion of tongues. Just how many linguistic variants were then produced, we don't know. Candlish was of the opinion that it may only have been three, from which basis all modern languages stem. Be that as it may, Candlish is undoubtedly correct in his assessment of the tower builder's sin. And I quote from his studies in Genesis, he said, It was an act of daring rebellion against the Most High, and in particular against his prerogative of dividing to the nations their inheritance, being avowedly intended for the very purpose of preventing the orderly dispersion which God had manifestly appointed. Now this scattering of the family of man at Babel was not, as is sometimes stated, a confusion. It was the tongues that were confused. The scattering was not, diffused, uh, was not uh, confused. It was, uh, in fact, uh, as you look at the, the narrative there, a methodical dispersal, dispersal and migration out from the plain of Shinar. To the north trekked Japheth and his family. To the south, Ham while Shem settled in the central belt, which included the land flowing with milk and honey, later to be the portion of the descendants of Abraham through Isaac. As a result of these great migrations, the earth came to be populated, the cultures of man richly diversified. But, and it is here that judgment is most profoundly expressed, the task of taking the gospel to all mankind was made all the more difficult. It is to this divine ordering of human society that the Apostle refers in his Areopagus address when he states that they should inhabit the whole earth and he, God, determined the exact places where they should live, Acts 17.26. So let's look a little then at this ethno-linguistic diversity. As an example of the present ethno-linguistic complexity that creates so many barriers to cross-cultural missionary activity, we can cite the example of Europe as described in the Encyclopedia Britannica. You'll find it in 1974, Macropedia, Volume 6, page 1122, which divides Europe into four major cultural areas. It's just Europe, 22 cultural provinces and 158 distinct languages. Or consider, for example, the Caucasian races, 660 languages, the Mongoloid peoples, 1,700 languages, or the Negroid peoples, 1,660 languages. And each language enshrines a particular ethos and a culture. This is the greatest issue that is facing the church as it seeks to communicate the gospel throughout the world. What separates men from the gospel? apart from their fallenness, of course, is not geographical distance, but cultural dif distance. 
Now, missiologists and cultural anthropologists have contrived a way to express this distance between cultures by a code which describes the number of barriers that a person must cross to communicate adequately with people of another culture. Encyclopedia of Christianity uses a system based on values naught to six. For example, uh, I'm reasonably confident with my facts, I stand to be corrected. Uh, for example, a middle-class Scotsman from Edinburgh communicating with a middle-class Scotsman from Perth would have no cultural barriers to cross, and therefore we express the cultural distance as C naught. If, however, our middle-class Scotsman from Edinburgh wishes to communicate the gospel uh, with a Gaelic-speaking crofter from the Outer Isles, then the cultural distance would be expressed as C1. There's that one language barrier uh, that has to be crossed. Whereas a British missionary seeking uh, to uh, speak to a Nigerian Igala subsistence farmer would have to cross many cultural and linguistic frontiers, and so the distance would be expressed as C6. Other systems of evaluating the distance between cultures include Ralph Winters, found in his essay, The Highest Priority, Cross-Cultural Evangelism, in uh, the volume of papers and responses of the Luzan Congress, Let the, the Earth Hear His Voice. And uh, David J. Hesselgrave has got some very helpful material uh, on this subject in his book, Planting Churches Cross-Culturally. And I think the great benefit of it all is just to remind us of the difficulty of communicating with people. We mustn't take it for granted that because we have some superficial knowledge of another person's culture, perhaps even language, that it is easy for us uh, to bridge the distances. It would be folly, I believe, to disregard the wealth of helpful material on this subject, enabling us to appreciate just how great the ethno-linguistic divides are and how culturally sensitive we need to be if we hope to preach the gospel in terms people understand. It is naive to believe that the preacher's task is simply to repeat the word as it is written down in scripture. That is so. You would better stay at home and send portions of scripture through the post. Instead, the preacher missionary goes forth to become immersed in the life of his fellows so that he can, through his personality, bring the gospel to bear upon specific people whose outlook, values, attitudes and aspirations are largely formed by the culture in which they live. And so that brings us to the point of considering this need for cultural sensitivity. That the apostles were sensitive to the diversity of cultures that formed the milieu of their ministry can be seen by the distinctive emphases in their preaching. The arrangement of material and particular stresses of truth were different when they preached to a Jewish congregation, for example, uh, compared to their preaching in a Gentile context. Without in any way jeopardizing the message itself, their preaching was self-consciously carried on in a specific cultural context. In a word, it was contextualized preaching. Now, to be sure, this term is currently a very loaded one. To some, it expresses the very essence of cross-cultural ministry, whilst others suspect that contextualization is some kind of clandestine synonym for syncretism. In fact, the term itself is neutral and helpful in expressing the need for careful adaptation to the prevailing customs and culture of the people to whom we witness. The discuss discussion centering on contextualization has become necessary due to the often crass insensitivity and ignorance of foreign Western missionaries. Eric Wright, in his little book, Tell the World, uh, points out that in a survey of over 5,000 Christian workers in India, many of whom were Western missionaries, over a half said that it was not necessary to know anything about Hinduism or Islam to be an effective worker in India. And I can well remember when we were in Nigeria, a veteran missionary who when staying in our home in Nigeria expressed concern and alarm over what she perceived to be the presence of evil one evening. She fancied that she detected uh, this presence of evil when one moonlit night uh, she could hear the local young people down in the marketplace singing folk songs accompanied by drums. Her sense of unease, I believe, was to be attributed much more to a lack of acculturation than anything demonic going on that night. But with moonlit nights, drums, a childhood diet of romantic colonial missionary tales and a good imagination, anything could have been going on down there. They could have had a missionary in the pot for all that she knew, and I think she believed that they nearly had. It was the same missionary who constantly had problems with household servants because she failed to realize that taking a young person 
into one's household meant, according to the local custom, that you accepted responsibility for them as your own children. When they helped themselves to a spoonful or two of sugar, or a biscuit, or the remains of a prepared meal, she considered it to have been stolen, branded these young people as thieves, dismissed them from a service, and if they were involved in the life of the church at all, sought to have them disciplined by the local uh, Kirk session. And the degree of hostility thus created served to neg negate most, if not all, of any Christian influence she fancied that she had over them. Now, one highly significant response to the need for cultural sensitivity is that associated with the name of Professor Donald McGavran and the Institute of Church Growth of Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena. Dr. McGavran has for more than 30 years called the church to take seriously the fact of the diversity of mankind and gear its missionary and evangelistic activities accordingly. The fundamental principle that seems to underlie his uh, teaching is the so-called homogeneous unit principle. Put simply, it is that, congregationally speaking, like attracts like. According to McGavran, the task of missions is to win men to Christ and incorporate them in congregations without requiring them to cross boundaries to the church from their own particular homogeneous unit. Churches should be, according to McGavran, monoethnic, comprised largely of those from a single social and cultural background. McGavran is wary of any approach that means, and I quote him here, becoming a Christian means leaving our people and joining those foreigners. Citing the Indian experience, he says, and I quote him again, evangelism will seek to bring those who believe into congregations made up of their own kith and kin. His volume on ethnic realities in the church, Lessons from India, is well worth reading on this subject. Do not agree with all of it, I'm quite sure of that. But uh, it is a, a very helpful and uh, enlightening book. The concern of Dr. McGavern is well expressed in words of his. He says, as I read the future, many homogeneous units are fighting a losing battle against the tide in human affairs. They will eventually go. Larger and larger racial and linguistic unities appear, appear likely. But homogeneous units are here now and are likely to be here for a long time. Let the church disciple each of them out to the fringes. Operate with them and preserve the richness of their cultures and as far as it can mitigate the antipathy which arises between bodies of men and promote love and justice between all men. The church working thus with the homogeneous unit and not against it will liberate the multitudinous ethnic units of mankind into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Now it's become almost fashionable in reformed circles of late to dismiss the church growth school of thought as seriously flawed. And there are, I believe indeed, biblical inconsistencies and misemphases and perhaps less than careful exegesis. But we would, I believe, do well to ponder many of the helpful insights that Dr. McGavran gives us. At least let us form our views of what he is trying to say from his own works rather than from his critics and detractors. In increasing our sensitivity to cultural realities and the ethno-linguistic complexity of our world, he has much to teach us. Professor Harvey Conn of Westminster Theological Seminary would have us thank God for this man who, and I quote Harvey Conn, whose continuous, almost relentless reminder to us is that the business of missions is the planting of the church. Now, having entered that caveat on his behalf, we have to say we feel that McGavran encourages the church in a misuse of the knowledge uh, of that socio-anthropological socio science. Instead of using the homogeneous unit principle to sharpen our perception of those to whom we aim the gospel, it has been misapplied as a principle of church development. Although great sensitivity is needed to appreciate the barriers that lie between unconverted men and membership of the church, and we do not wish to add to the offence of the gospel, we cannot, however, permit the church to be imprisoned in any human culture or any set of traditions invariably tainted by sin. The goal for the church, local as well as universal, is summed up clearly in the Apostles' teaching in Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 22, for example, where he summarizes it in these words, that it is the Lord's purpose to create one new man out of two, out of the diversity of the human race, to bring all together into one new man. In the epistles, the church so often is depicted as something very fragile, 
uh, an almost unstable uh, creation, composed of members drawn from diverse backgrounds, who are, and I quote, to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. The injunction, for example, such as in Romans 15, verse 7, that we're to receive one another as Christ received us to the glory of God, would have little application in a mono-ethnic congregation, but would be a foundational teaching in congregations composed of Jews and Gentiles, Greeks and barbarians, slaves and masters, rich and poor. Those early congregations which failed to identify with God's multicultural objective, those established within a strongly defined monocultural context, namely the Jewish congregations, soon cease to exist. The tendency of monoethnic congregations is to become exclusivist. They are thus often perceived to be unattractive, even unfriendly, to those outside the homogenous unit, and themselves having little concern for those outside, because they become very insular and narrow in their outlook. The demise of such congregations is never far off. For as Emil Brunner rightly observed, missions are the lifeblood of the church. Suspend them and she swoons, stop them and she dies. Nevertheless, the rich diversity of human culture is not to be obliterated or merged into some kind of Christian cultural fusion. It is not a new monoculture that we are to seek, but a true multicultural, multiracial, multinational church. A church in which no one is required to break away from their ethno-linguistic or cultural roots, but one in which all cultures will find acceptance and respect and where distinctive contributions that arise within those cultures will be welcome. I well remember speaking about these things to uh, some elders uh, out in Nigeria. And uh, one of the elders uh, said in the course of the conversation that he was rather pleased to hear this kind of emphasis because he well remembered the day when the missionaries first came. And through no fault of the missionaries, through nothing that they had said, he somehow got it into his head that when going to church he had to have an appearance something like the missionaries themselves. They wore European trousers and European shirt and a tie. Now these Igala men had their, their grand robes on. And when he went to church he said as young fellows we used to gather up our big robes and we used to tuck them into our trousers. And it must have looked bizarre to see those men making their way into church. They felt that they had to deny the culture they'd been brought up in. Deny their own uh, particular uh, racial contribution. The old cultural self-consciousness with its chauvinism and alienation must give way to a culture, race and colour transcending love and acceptance. It was encouraging to notice the Pasadena report of the Lausanne movement in 1977 expressing concern over the homogenous unit congregations in the following words. They said, a homogenous unit church can be a legitimate and authentic church Yet if it remains in isolation, it cannot reflect the universality and diversity of the body of Christ. Therefore, every homogenous unit church must take active steps to broaden its fellowship in order to demonstrate visibly the unity and variety of Christ's church. And uh, that's the end of the quote. With such a goal in mind, the apostle could write to the Ephesians these words. Consequently, he said, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. The inescapable corollary of embracing the gospel and thereby experiencing union and fellowship with God is that I am united to all other believers and stand with them on an identical basis of equality and worth. I am obligated to seek to extirpate all traces of any lingering racism, traditionalism or cultural bias that threatens the harmony and peace of the church. Among the things I must renounce in becoming a disciple are those ties of blood and kinship which would take precedence over my new identity among the citizens of, of citizens of heaven. Our Lord preached that we must be prepared to leave those who are our kith and kin in coming to him. And the Apostle Paul also uh, emphasised this in his uh, own response uh, to his gospel ministry. He, uh, in Philippians chapter 3, puts it like this, he says, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, 
uh, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless and impeccable pedigree indeed. But he said, whatever was to my profit I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ uh, for the fact that this was his descent, that he was a Jew, that uh, the blessings of the covenant were his. And yet, in terms of uh, the ethno-linguistic background that he had inherited, he was prepared to call it rubbish, worthless, if it was in any way going to hold him back in his pursuit of Christ and uh, fellowship within the church. Well, by way of postscript, let's just have a little look at the uniqueness of the individual. We've looked at the unity of the human race. We've looked at the diversity uh, of mankind. Now a little about the uniqueness of the individual. It's not... Uh, it's an addendum to what we've been considering, but I think important that we mention it. The biblical doctrine of race teaches us of both the unity and the great diversity of mankind. The Christian, in seeking to evangelize the human race, is obligated to conserve the harmony and respect the distinctions he finds in the family of man. Yet in a very real sense, the gospel is never addressed to stereotypes from within the world's cultures. It is addressed to individuals. It is not the human race as such, nor yet the diverse units within the human race that bears the image of God. That image is impressed upon the nature and character of the individual. Though each man stands in organic solidarity with the rest of mankind, it is not the human race en masse that will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, but rather each individual accounts for his or her sinfulness. It is not families, clans, tribes, or some other homogenous unit that comes in repentance and faith to receive salvation. It is men and women as individuals. It may be individuals within a society. It may be individuals affecting others within their group, but it is as individuals that uh, men and women come to faith. The importance of this fact cannot be overstated. The gospel is never addressed to the Jews. It is never addressed to the Muslims. It is never addressed to the Hindus. The stereotype does not, in fact, exist. Only individuals exist with their idiosyncrasies, their inconsistencies, and their distinctive characteristics. For example, the Christian approach to the Jew may well be a fascinating exercise in theoretical missiology, but the Jew, idealistically conceived, does not exist. In the words of the Israeli comedian, who when asked if he was an Orthodox Jew, he replied by saying, oh no, he said, I'm only Jewish. And the same applies everywhere. People are never as consistent as the theoretical position we would like to slot them into. J.H. Bavink, in words that should be written indelibly in our memories, puts it so well. He says, abstract, disembodied and history-less sinners do not exist. Only very concrete sinners exist, whose sinful life is determined and characterised by all sorts of cultural and historical factors, by poverty, hunger, superstition, traditions, chronic illnesses, tribal morality, and thousands of other things. I must bring the gospel of God's grace in Jesus Christ to the whole man in his concrete existence, in his everyday environment. The content of God's word itself teaches me that I must seriously consider the person to whom I would direct myself. Under no circumstances... These are words well worthy of note. Under no circumstances may I present the word of God in general, abstract, timeless formulas addressed to no one. As an ambassador of the living Christ, I must direct myself to living people, and I must earnestly consider them as persons in all their circumstances and in all their traits of character. And you'll find that in, the, in an introduction to the science of missions, pages 81 to 83. It is interesting to notice that such a lack of interest in the concrete situation in which men find themselves is identifiable in the writings of Karl Barth. In some evangelical and reformed circles, it is not at all unusual to be reminded that man is the same as ever he was, that the gospel is unchanged, and all we need to do is preach its timeless truths. Such an emphasis finds full expression in Barth's homiletics where he denies that man's real situation is the historical one he finds himself in. His real situation, he says, is as he is before God. 
However, we do not need to accept this dialectic, for there is no contradiction between man in his historical cultural situation and his situation before God. There is nothing to stop us from being faithful both to the text and to life, to preach without due sensitivity to the context of preaching, and to become concerned only with the content of preaching will lead to a stifling irrelevance. In one sense, we do start from the text, which determines our message. But in another sense, we start with the hearers, and we ask ourselves, what is the message that I must preach into this particular situation? This sensitivity to and empathy with others is of the very essence of evangelism, intercultural and cross-cultural, at home and abroad. The ability to sit where they sit, to identify means far more than learning to speak a foreign language and having a theoretical knowledge of a people's history and social customs. The identification we must aim at is analogical of Christ's identification with us. We've been reminded twice already in the course of this school of the uh, chapter 2 of Philippians, let this mind be in you that speaks of Christ's condescension to the, to the cross that he might win sinners to himself. And it was this incarnational identification that the great missionary apostle himself sought to emulate. Writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 16, he says this, Yet he said, when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, for I am compelled to preach. Woe, is, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntary, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this that in preaching the gospel I may offer it free of charge and so not make use of my rights in preaching it. And then he goes on to say, Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone and to win as many as possible. To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings." As George W. Peters reminds us, the missionary task is a human task. He has said, God has chosen human instruments to accomplish his task in human hearts within a human society surrounded by a human environment. Humanism and theological liberalism, no doubt, have overemphasized this factor and have made missions almost totally anthropocentric and philanthropic. Evangelical Christianity, to a great extent, has underestimated this vital fact.